Thank you, Bob. In your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We'll be continuing our series through the Thessalonian letters. And we've finished last week the eschatological section. And this week we're moving into his final remarks. He's been encouraging us to live for the day of the Lord, for the day of Christ's return. And we've seen that in the last two sections, that first the promise to us as believers to join him and be with him forever, and then the warning of unbelievers that they will face his divine wrath at a time when they do not expect him. And a call for us to, of course, live in readiness, awake and sober, not sleeping, not drunk, which means, of course, to live a godly and holy life that is pleasing in his sight. Now he continues on with that basic theme here, as kind of his Christianity 101 for the people of Thessalonica that he couldn't spend much time with. And the instructions here are really quite critical at the conclusion. He has three parts. One is honoring their Christian leaders. The second is about their life as Christians. And the third is about the work of the Holy Spirit. And then just before the doxology at the end, the last verses before the doxology, he gives a warning, which is applicable to all three of those, as well as to our life in general. He says in verse 21, test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every evil. So we will keep that in mind before we, before we uh, cover the text. Let's actually read it. We'll read verses 12 down through 28 so that we can finish up the chapter and the book. But we will only be looking at verses 12 and 13 today, the first of those three things, honoring their leaders. So let us read 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12 to the end. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very high in the love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to everyone and to one another. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good and abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are thankful that in your providence, Paul was in a situation where he needed to teach the very basics of the Christian faith to a church he had planted. And we have that teaching written down for us so that we may also think about these very basic things for our life as Christians 
And as we consider the first of these issues, honoring our leaders, we pray that you would open our hearts and eyes, that we might see and know the truth and humble ourselves and submit ourselves to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So he's writing in verse 12 to the brothers, the believers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and to admonish you and who, and who admonish you. Uh, before we can really talk about the respecting, esteeming and loving these people, we really need to think about who they are. They are the ones who are over us in the Lord. And the idea of being over us in the Lord, I think, is central and key here. They're not over us in society. They're not over us by their own appointment. But they are appointed by the Lord to be in authority and to keep watch over our souls. And so that's very important. There is a distinct leadership called out by God. Well, every Christian has things they do in the church or should do in the church. They have ministries. They have areas where they can help, areas where they can encourage, areas where they can pray. We all have that responsibility as believers. But leaders are called out specially by God. And it's a distinct group, the only ones who are over us in the Lord. Uh, the basics can be seen in Scripture. We see in James 2.2, he talks about if a man wearing gold rings and fine clothes comes into your assembly and a man in poor clothes and shabby clothing, a poor man in shabby clothing comes in. If you think about that, the word assembly just slides right by. But if you know the Greek word, I think you're all going to say, aha. The Greek word there is synagogue. The other 55 times in the Bible, it's translated synagogue. James was talking to the Christians who were in their own body now and calling them the synagogue because that is the foundation of Christianity. They were originally all Jews. They all met in the synagogue to worship and to study. And slowly they were driven out of the apostate synagogues, but they were still believing synagogues. And that is where the Christianity got its start as Jewish believers worshiping and accepting their Messiah in their synagogue. And how was the synagogue run? Well, this is important. The Jews in their synagogue had a defined leadership structure, which you would expect. You cannot have no leadership structure in an organization that lives for hundreds of years, as the synagogues had. They had a very defined leadership structure, and that leadership structure was rule by elders. If you do not have a defined leadership structure, chaos results. And it doesn't really matter whether it's the church or business or the government or some club. If everybody does what they want and there's no organized leadership to affect the things of leading, then it'll fall apart and chaos was to come. And we see Israel was run by its elders all the way back in the Exodus, Exodus 3.16, Moses was instructed, Go gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord your God, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what is being done to you in Egypt. 
And they began the Exodus. But who was the Exodus under? Well, Moses is God's appointed leader over all, but the elders were in charge of the people of Israel. And that was more the civil government. But the idea of being led by and ruled by elders was all the way back to the beginning. And if you look at the other family stories all the way back to Abraham, Abraham was the leader of his clan as the eldest. But as it grew, the clans were broken up and led by elders of each body. Now, by the time Paul is writing his epistle, they had all been, the Christian, the, the believing Jews and the believing Gentiles had been driven far from the unbelieving synagogues. And if you remember in John's revelation, at that point it was probably much later than Paul's writing. The Jews are called by their Messiah, a synagogue of Satan in Revelation 2.9. The synagogues had been basically taken over, and we see the apostate Jews persecuting the believers. They've driven them out, and the church took on another name. James is one of the earliest books, but in the later books and in Paul's writings, they use the word ecclesia, which we translate church, but it also means pretty much the same thing as the synagogue. They kept the same leadership structure. Here they were driven, they were in the, in the synagogue worshiping. They're driven out of the synagogue and they formed their own churches. They didn't suddenly get a new divine revelation. We have no record of it for a new order of, of organization. They just kept what they had. And they continued to have elders as their leaders, as the rulers. Now, we read from Paul uh, in his first missionary journey in Acts chapter 14, verse 23. They're going back through the cities, encouraging everybody. And when they had appointed elders, note, by the way, the word is plural. It's not an autocratic rule by one man. It's a plurality of leaders of equal standing for them. every So when they had appointed elders in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And so they appointed elders. Again, the elders were the leaders, just like they were in the synagogue of the congregation. Now, by the way, the, the Greek word for elder, you'll recognize this word too. It's presbyteros. And we get presbyopia, old eyes, presbyakua, as we were joking about old ears. But presbyteros is elder. And you can figure out that that's where we get to be called presbyters and why we go to presbytery meetings and why we're called Presbyterians, because we follow the rule of elders and a plurality of elders who are peers. We don't have some higher and some lower. We don't have elders over elders in our, our understanding of what God has ordained. And these presbytery meetings are meetings of peers to govern the church, to encourage each other, and to handle the problems and issues that come up in church. And we see an example of this in Acts chapter 15. The elders are assembled together. They are sent to Jerusalem to discuss the big problem. So they went to the rulers, the elders, to resolve the problem. And after discussing what had happened and reviewing both sides, they came to a decision. Uh, we read in Acts 
15, verse 2, Paul and Barnabas had no dissension and debate with these people, the Judaizers, and they, they and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. The elders met, discussed, came to a, a solution or a um, decision about what was being taught and what should be taught and what should not be taught, and they announced their decision. Now, Paul shortly thereafter sets out on his second missionary journey, and one of his purposes we read in Acts 15, 40, and 41 is he's going to strengthen the churches that were already planted. And in verse 4 it says, as they went on their way through, uh, verse 4 of chapter 16, as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. The ruling of the presbyters, the elders and the apostles were all elders, but they were unique because they had a special calling from God. But the decision of the elders that had been reached was sent out to the churches and they were called upon to follow them, to observe them. Uh, if we want to use the, the text we were reading this morning in 1 Thessalonians, they were called to honor and esteem the elders by observing their decisions, by obedience. Uh, notwithstanding, we have problems because sometimes men make mistakes and sometimes men are sinful and corrupt and have worked their way into the church. But the decision was to be followed as long as it was in agreement with God's word and with the revelation which the prophets and the apostles were giving them. Now, all men are sinners, and there are even unbelievers in congregations, and there are even unbelievers in pulpits. And I think this is all taken into consideration in God's word quite well and in our passage today, which is why I read verse 20 and 21 of chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians before. Test everything, hold fast to the good, abstain from every form of evil. If you're familiar with Presbyterian church history in the U.S., you know that the Presbyterian body was originally very devout and believing. Over time, unbelievers worked their way in. Over time, they worked up in numbers until they were the majority, and they kicked out the believers, forming the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and the Bible Presbyterian Church. The main BC USA church was Boston. Now we're seeing a similar problem starting to happen in the PCA, where a battle over creation and over women and over various other things has divided the body and the believing ones are getting smaller and smaller. And the ones who want to liberalize are getting bigger and bigger. Now, there is the point, while God may have appointed the order, we are to test everything. And how do we test things? By comparing them with Scripture. Now, within the church, we, we argue that the Lord has appointed two official offices in the church. And we consider them offices because they're ordained, because there's a laying on of hands. We already know that elders were the leaders in the early church, but on his first missionary journey, Paul says that there were in the church in Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul to the work which I have called them. 
And after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. The laying on of hands was the ordination, the installing them to the office that God had called them to. And that they were then to go out as pastors and missionaries to the people. This practice of ordination is carried on from the Old Testament priesthood. Aaron's sons, we read, were to be given coats and sashes and caps made for the glory of God and the beauty. And they were to be put on Aaron and his brother and on his sons with him. And you shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. So in the Old Testament, this ordination, this setting apart for the special service of God, belonging to God. Now, today we are all priests. We all have the right to go directly to God through his son. We don't have priests in the church because we have the priesthood of all believers. John wrote to the seven churches that are in Asia in the the Revelation, Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests, to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And so all believers are, believe, are considered to be priests. We're not ordained to that. We're baptized into the work as believers. It's our responsibility and our, our blessing. The Old Testament promise was, Now therefore, if you will indeed hear my voice I will keep and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel, Exodus 19, 5 and 6. And as we've talked about before, what happens next? Moses goes up on the mountain. The people make a golden calf to worship. They, They did not keep his words, and they never were a kingdom of priests. But that is the job now of the church. As Protestants, we all believe in the priesthood of all believers. But if no one was appointed to lead the congregation, chaos would result. Uh, My family background is Quaker. Quaker churches come in a wide variety of beliefs because they have no organization, no structures. Whatever the majority wants, they become, including cults. Uh, It's very sad because they have no standard and no leadership. God has appointed elders for that purpose, for that leadership. Paul warns, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths, 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4. This is the big reason why God has appointed structure and order and standards in the church. There are leaders, and we'll see about them later, that they are to be the the best of Christians, held to a very high standard, and they are to keep the church centered on the scriptures, the truth, that it will not wander away and become apostate. Well, certainly every believer is a priest and has direct access to God through the blood of his Son, Not everyone is qualified to be the elder that is talked about in the Bible. 
The qualifications for elders are essentially to be the ideal Christian with experience and leadership abilities. They are the ones who admonish you and are over you in the Lord, and they need to be able to do that job. Paul warns Timothy to not be hasty in the laying on of hands or take part in the sins of others. Keep yourselves pure, 1 Timothy 5.22. What does it mean not to be hasty? Well, it means examine them carefully and make sure they really are fit and qualified. We've gotten into trouble in the past where men are popular and they're allowed to become elders or become ministers without a careful examination. And then men find out to their shame and horror later, they don't really have the faith. They don't agree and they, they create a division in the church. So Paul says, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. The instructions he gives to Titus are, these are why I left you in Crete, that you might put it whatever remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Elders need to be in every town to lead the church. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. First qualifications. For an overseer, now he shifts from elder to overseer. What is an overseer in Greek? You recognize the word again, so I'm going to use it. Episkopos. You've heard of Episcopalian. Uh, basically, it's the word translated bishop. But note that a bishop and an elder in this passage are the same. Bishop as an overseer is not a higher office, but part of the work of the elder to oversee. So he says, an overseer as God's steward. Note, steward only. They are not overlords building their own kingdom, as is often the case. They are stewards of God's kingdom. An overseer, as a steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm. Well, before we go on, so the first thing is his moral character. Are any of the things called there things that all Christians should not have? No, I think pretty much every Christian should have all of those. So he's to be an exemplary version of the Christian morally. Second part, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. So knowing doctrine correctly, being able to teach the doctrine correctly, being able to correct those who are teaching it wrong and rebuke them is part of the requirement. And that requires that he actually know the word well. Uh, for our denomination, we usually do around 12 hours of oral examinations about the Bible and about theology and about practice to make sure a pastor is fit to be a pastor. Let me tell you, it's brutal, <laughs> but it's necessary. A man who doesn't know his scripture well enough, who doesn't understand his theology and can't explain it, is probably a man who's going to be led off into the weeds and lead the people astray. Even if he's well-meaning, he may lead them astray through ignorance and inability. So he must be able to rebuke those who contradict it and correct them. 
For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must not they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. That was Titus chapter 1, verse 5 through 11. Notice, tied into the qualifications of the elder are the ability to refute, refute those who are going against the word. And then he gives a specific example of those who are enemies in his day of the cross of Christ and need to be dealt with because they're in the church. And they're teaching things that ought not to be taught. So elders tend to be examined, need to be examined as to whether or not they meet these requirements. And the examination is done by those who will be their peers, by other elders, by the presbytery, both their personal qualifications and their doctrines, and really their ability to apply them. All of those need to be done. It's called out in Scripture. Without going through this and without being found to meet all of these requirements, a man is really not qualified to be an elder. End of discussion. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, as Timothy is warned. Paul gives similar instructions to Timothy. I think I'll skip over them because they're very similar and we'll run out of time. But in the Requirements to Timothy, he reiterates those things, and it's more, again, we note that it's the exemplary Christian character, a thorough knowledge of the Word of God and of doctrine are required. Presbyterians in general break elders into two groups. Teaching elders, the ministers, and the ruling elders, who are considered laymen in most denominations. Uh, some of them see these as two separate offices. Some see them as one office with two varieties. Um, that argument is not important. We get the in- indication of this division, though, in 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18, where we read, Let the elders who rule well be considered of double honor, especially or particularly those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain. So there were elders whose job was teaching and preaching, and they're distinct from the other group of elders. At least that's how we see it. And most groups that I know, most Presbyterians that I know of, ministers, teaching elders, are ordained and examined by the presbytery, whereas the ruling elders are examined and ordained by the session. That's not particularly clear in scripture, but it's the practice that is used. Because if every church had to send all their elder candidates to be examined by the presbytery, and elders had to endure a 12-hour exam to be able to serve in the local church, we wouldn't have many elders. Being able to explain the difference between intralapsarian, supralapsarian, and prove which one is true, uh, not going to happen for most people. Twelve hours of that would get a little tedious. And so the simpler ordination requirements, just that they have a thorough knowledge of Scripture and an exemplary life. Now, the work of the elders, what is their job? What do they do? What's, we can see a lot of that in the requirements, what they're 
what they have to have for skills. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, we have this charge to Timothy, Pastor Timothy himself from Paul. I charge you in the presence of God and Jesus Christ who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. The main, main t- job. Be ready and in season and out of season. Whether it's convenient or not, whether you'll be persecuted or not, whether it'll be received or not, preach the word. Rebu- reprove, rebuke, and exhort. So the pastor is not just to idly stand by and say the word and not talk to people about their own personal issues and sins, but they're to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. But note, with complete patience and teaching, patience is over and over again mentioned by Paul. Patience, grace, love, kindness, the New Testament requires all of those in the teaching and the preaching. With patient, complete patience and teaching, you don't just tell them this is what the truth is, believe it or else. You explain to them, you help them understand as much as they need, patiently. And that's where he says, for the time is coming, well, people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears will accumulate to themselves teachers to suit their own passions, turning away from the truth and wandering off into myths. First Timothy 4, 1 through 5. The idea being the first part of their job is to share the word of God, the revelation of God with the people, the prophetic revelation that is fully inspired, to explain it to the point where they can understand it and help them live it out in their lives and to correct them when they're not living it in their lives. That was the first of it. Now, Paul, on his way to prison, he knew prophetically that many prophets had been telling him he would be imprisoned and possibly even die. On his way to Jerusalem, he met with the Ephesian elders, and he said to them, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. Now, does that mean he didn't kill anybody? No, his meaning explained in the next verse, verse 27. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. His point People who have itching ears will hear some things and not others. And I've heard of pastors who, I can't preach that, you know, that passage to my congregation. They'd stone me, they'd kick me out, um, they'd quit the church. Paul says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Sometimes we do it intentionally. We, men will avoid preaching on something that will cause them trouble. Other times, because we all have our hobby horses, We go from sermon to sermon to sermon to sermon, preaching what we want to preach and missing parts. That's why I go passage by passage, book by book. It helps me to preach the whole counsel of God. And so he's, if you don't preach the whole counsel of God, the implication here is, then you're not innocent of the blood. And what is he talking about? Well, we'll come back to Ezekiel in a minute. Think of the passage we read this morning. So then he instructs them, I did not shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. The word bishop or elder. Take care of the church of God. Or 
made you overseers in order to take care of the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. For I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease day or night to admonish everyone with tears. That was Acts chapter 20, 26 through 31. So the elder's job, teaching and preaching the whole counsel of God and preparing the congregation for the wolves that will rise up and in doing battle with the wolves. And that's what we saw in Ezekiel chapter 3 this morning, but he says the same thing again, or very similar in Ezekiel chapter 33, the first nine verses. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, if I bring a sword upon the land and the people of the land, take a man from among them and make him their watchman. If he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning and the sword takes him away, his blood is on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet but did not take warning. His blood is upon himself means he's responsible for his own death. But if he had taken the warning, he would have saved his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, so the people aren't warned and the sword comes and takes one of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity, his sin, but his blood I shall require at the watchman's hands. So, son of man, I have made you a watchman of the house of Israel. When you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn him from his wicked way, the wicked person shall die in his iniquity. He shall die for his sin. But his blood I will require at your hand, because you did not warn him. But if you warn the wicked from his way and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his sin. Warning or no warning, you still die for your sin, but you'll have delivered your own soul if you make the warning, Ezekiel 33, 1 through 9. Yeah, that's what Paul is referring to when he says, I'm innocent of the blood of all men. Paul was a scholar of the Old Testament. His, the things he says are the things that we see in the Old Testament too, and in this case in particular. I didn't shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God. God gives a warning in the Bible I give it to the person who needs it and give it to the people because that is what God requires of me as a minister, as an elder, Paul says. Men have itching ears, though, and they only want the selected parts of God's word that will please them. Those that can somehow be interpreted as not being against them, but only against others. Probably why James says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. I'm speaking probably of teaching elders, but of anyone who teaches in the church. We will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. And a man does not stumble in what he says. He is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. James chapter 3, 1 and 2. Men don't want to hear the whole counsel of God. Paul says the elder, one of his great responsibilities, one of his greatest challenges in life is to preach the whole counsel of God with complete patience. 
reproving, rebuking, exhorting, and what is the purpose of it all? But to call them back to God from their sins. To call them to repentance. That's what it means to be an elder in the church of God. Now, there's another office, ordained office in the New Testament, and we need to think about that, deacons, because there are churches that are led not by elders, but by deacons. Uh, I don't understand where that concept comes from, because if you look in the New Testament, Acts chapter 6 is where the deacons are created. And if we just look at the text, it's pretty clear their purpose. It's not to rule the church, but to take the load off the elders. Now, Acts chapter 6, starting at verse 1. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, the Greek Jews, arose against the Hebrews, the Hebrew Jews, because their widows, the, the Greek widows, believing widows, were, not, were being neglected in the daily distribution. So the problem was the Jews were giving food to the Greek, Jew, Jewish widows, but generally ignoring the Greek-believing widows. And they were suffering. And it created a controversy in the church. And now the apostles set aside the study of the word of God, set aside the preaching, the teaching, the praying, deal with, we need to make this done right. It wasn't probably happening out of malice, but just out of oversight or people not thinking that they should be doing it. They needed some leadership to come in and step in. So the twelve apostles summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God in order to serve tables. Their work was being disrupted that God had called an elder to do. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, and we will appoint them this duty. We will devote ourselves to prayer in the ministry of the word. And that seemed pleasing to the whole congregation, so they chose Stephen, etc., etc. And they set him before the apostles, they prayed, and they laid hands on them. They were ordained. So it is an ordained office, but why were they created? So that the elders could focus on the ministry of the word and prayer. What was their duty? Their duty was to take care of the things that needed taking care of under the leadership, under the direction of the elders, certainly, but to then make sure the food was distributed properly. So the elders would say, you need to help all the widows who meet the requirements, whether they're Jewish or Greek, as long as they're believers in good standing. And there's a list in Paul's writings about who should be on those lists of um, widows who are cared for. And then the deacons were to go out and make it happen so that the elders could focus on what they were supposed to focus on. Some limit the work of deacons to handing out food. But I think the responsibility they were given was to help care for all the needs of the church so that the apostles could focus on the the apostles in that case, but really the elders could focus on the preaching and the teaching of the word and the ministry of the word and on prayer and not be burdened by them. Uh, They were essentially the servants of the church. 